Well, we're here in Genesis 2, and we're going to, again, look at verse uh, 15 and uh, go through the end of the chapter here this morning. But let me kind of give you a little bit of an understanding of what's taking place in the the passage that we're uh, skipping over here or or not spending as much time on. Notice in verse 4, notice if you have your Bibles open, look there at verse 4, and you'll notice that Moses writes, these are the generations, and that phrase, these are the generations, and especially that word generations, is a word that's going to occur over and over again in in Genesis, and it's something that kind of helps provide a little bit of an outline of the book of Genesis. So you see it here in chapter 2 and verse 5, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 5, it's going to say this is the book of the generations of Adam, chapter 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah, chapter 11, we're going to see the generations of Shem. Uh, in verse 27 of chapter 11, we're going to see the generations of Terah, we're going to see the generations of Ishmael, then the generations of Isaac and Esau, and then, in, then you get into 37, and you're going to see these are the generations of Jacob. And so the writer of the Pentateuch, of Genesis here, uses this phrase, these are the generations, to help us understand where we are in the book. And he's going to say, these are the generations of so-and-so, and then we're going to see that person's story or the story of their descendants or something about their descendants. And why does he do that? Well, we're going to talk more about this in two weeks when we come back to Genesis. But in Genesis 3, we're going to see the fall. And in verse 15, we're going to see kind of the first gospel message whenever God reveals that it's going to be from the seed of the woman, the descendant of the, this man and woman, that's going to reverse the effects of the fall. That's going to save people from their sin. And, and that's what the writer of Genesis is interested in. Who is this, this promised seed? And so the idea of, idea of descendants is an important idea. So I don't want you to miss that as we go past some of these verses here. What's happening here in chapter 2 as we come to verse 4 is that Moses, he's given us this big picture of creation in chapter 1, and now in chapter 2 we're looking at the sixth day more particularly. And in fact, not just the sixth day, but but the creation of, of not, and not just of the creation of animals, but the, the pinnacle of creation, the creation of man and woman, and, and even more particularly, the, the creation of marriage, the establishment of a family. That's the pinnacle of God's creative work, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And we're going to look at verses 15 through the end of the chapter there, verse 25. And so, if you would, stand with me in honor of God. As we read his word together, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You may be seated. May God encourage us and strengthen us, teach us through his word this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this understanding you give us of marriage and its purpose and how we're to conduct ourselves in this relationship that you've created. We pray this morning for those who, as they think about marriage, are, are sad or are struggling, for those who 
uh, might desire to be married and, and aren't. We pray for your comfort upon them. We pray for those uh, who are married and, and are struggling in that relationship. We would ask that you would be gracious to them. We pray that uh, how all of us view this institution of marriage would reflect a reverence for you and a desire to see you glorified in it. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message this morning is entitled, The Perfect Marriage, and I hope it's not uh, too awkward for you as I talk about my marriage the next 45 minutes or so. Um, Whitney said it was okay. and so, No, obviously, uh, we're not going to be talking about any marriage that exists under the fall if we're talking about the perfect marriage. Uh, this morning, we're talking about a marriage that was between two people who, for a moment in time, were not affected by the fall fall hadn't happened yet, and we're seeing this, this marriage that existed exactly as God had designed it to be, and we're going to learn some things about marriage as we look at how God designed it and what he desired this marriage to be and how two people who were not affected by the fall operated in this marriage. When Whitney and I were dating and, and then when we got engaged, we found ourselves very uncomfortable with, with marriage jokes. You know, you know, marriage jokes, right? Those, those jokes that people tell about marriage that they, they all kind of have as a common theme relational, relational strife, right? Things not being in the relationship as they should be. And so in, in a marriage joke, this relationship that's supposed to be marked by harmony is, is marked by, by disharmony. So the joke is about the, the nagging wife or the, the boorish husband or the lazy husband, or it's about how intimacy isn't taking place in this marriage like it's supposed to, or communication isn't happening like it's supposed to, or the finances aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And, and as we listen to these jokes, or we're around people who are telling these jokes, Whitney and I were, were kind of uncomfortable. Just it seemed really, like it didn't seem funny to us. Here were two single people who were about to enter into this relationship and were around these, these people who are married who are telling jokes and th- this, this relationship that we're about to enter into didn't sound all that great the way they described it. And what was even worse was when it wasn't like some just joke but it was just a, a sarcastic dig at the other person's expense. So kind of like, well, I would have a good time but you know, so-and-so and how she's such-and-such and it's just, boy, boy, just really made both of us uncomfortable. Maybe you've experienced that as well. Now, as the years have gone by, Whitney and I have been married 16 years, I think I understand a little bit more, maybe I've lightened up a little bit when it comes to to humor. Sometimes humor can be a, a tool that we use to illustrate our own failings, and we're not celebrating our, our failings. We're saying, you know what, I, I recognize that I'm a flawed person striving to honor God in this relationship. And, and so I, I see it sometimes, but I, I will say I'm still, both of us still, sometimes find marriage humor very uncomfortable. And I would say especially, especially marriage humor that doesn't really reverence the marriage relationship, first of all, so humor that, that attacks the, the oneness that should exist in marriage makes us uncomfortable. And, and then humor that belittles the spouse, right? Here we're in this relationship where there's supposed to be oneness and we're supposed to be esteeming one another and honoring one another. And we say comments that are derogatory and make our spouse or ourselves look bad. And it's, it's just not funny, right? It's not funny. It's serious. Now, my goal this morning isn't to attack humor, right? But my my point is this. Marriage humor, jokes about marriage that that fail to reverence marriage or or honor our spouses are really just a a small part of a larger, much larger problem, right? And the much larger problem is that you and I don't understand the purpose of marriage and God's theological reasons for, for creating the marriage relationship. Marriage in our culture today is under attack, and marriage has been under attack ever since its institution after the fall. 
And, and what I want us to do this morning is see what God designed marriage to be and understand that the reverence that we should hold this institution and think rightly about marriage because all of us understand that, that how other people view marriage in our culture today isn't right, but, but it's hard for us sometimes to articulate what we, we think is right. In fact, as I think about why we want to talk about Genesis chapter 2 this morning, there's a couple ways that I think this is very relevant to all of us. First of all, every single person in this room does live and exist in a culture that is not aware of what God's design for marriage is and and why God has designed marriage the way it should be. And so as we interact with people and we talk about what we believe about marriage and what it actually is and what God has designed it to be, people are going to, in our culture, to push back. We're in the midst of a, a radical redefinition of marriage. And as we say, well, no, this is what we believe that marriage is, people are going to say, well, well now, why do you believe that? And if we say, well, it's because what God says, that's not going to, just that answer alone isn't going to necessarily be convincing for people. Well, why does God want it to be that way? Well, I don't know. It's just what the Bible says. That's not really a sufficient answer. And so I want us to think deeply and theologically about, okay, not just what has God designed marriage to be, but why? What is his purpose in designing it this way? And, and what gives God the right to decide what marriage should be? So that's for all of us. Because all of us live in a culture, again, that is undergoing a, a radical redefinition of the purpose of marriage. And the definition of marriage. This is also an important message for, for those of you who are single young people, older people who are single. And maybe the tendency is when you hear that you're in a message about marriage, you're like, well, cool, vacation time, I will see you in about 45 minutes. Uh, No, this is a very important message for you. First of all, if if God does call you into marriage relationship, you need to know what is this relationship that he's calling me into supposed to be all about. And then even more important than that is is what does this marriage relationship that God has created teach me about him? That's something that the single, the married, all of us need to think through. For those of you who are in good marriages, this is an important message because you need to understand what is, what is God's definition of a good marriage. A good marriage doesn't just mean that you're kind of happy with how things are, but, but what has God designed this marriage to be and, and what is his definition of what makes a marriage good and what is this, this good marriage supposed to be teaching about him and his relationship to us and, and what we need to be doing in this relationship with him. And then for those who may be in, in bad marriages— what we need to understand, if, if, if that describes you this morning, is that even a marriage after the fall, even a marriage that's affected by the fall, teaches us something about the relationship between Christ and his church. There are things that God is calling you to do in that marriage relationship to honor and glorify him. So that's kind of where I want us to go this morning. We're going to look at, at this, this main idea that God is the creator of the marriage, and he's the one who determines marriage's ministry, its design, and its purpose. That's, that's the big thing that I want us to look at. We're going to see how we have the perfect marriage, or how we strive to have this perfect marriage that God has designed these relationships to be. And we're going to, to do this as we look at verses 15 through 25 of Genesis 2. And so let's begin looking, first of all, at this, at this idea, that God determines marriage's ministry. Number one, God determines marriage's ministry. And look at what we see here in verse 15. We read this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So what happens there? Man is placed in the garden. And in fact, that word there, put or or placed is a very special word. It doesn't just mean that the man was taken and kind of like a dice, God kind of randomly put him somewhere on the earth. It means that God divinely took this man and and placed him in a special way. That word put can also mean rest. It can mean to dwell in security. That word rest is a word that we're going to return to as we go through Genesis as rest is lost and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden and and rest is denied and they pursue rest and we pursue rest throughout the rest of Scripture. But what we notice here is that man is placed in this specific locale with a specific purpose too, right? What's the purpose? To be in this garden and to work it and to keep it 
Sometimes we think of, of work as an effect of the fall. Fall happens and then work happens, but that's not the case, right? Work is part of God's purpose before the fall, and man is placed in a special location with a divine ministry given to him by God. Ministry is to be in this garden, to work it, to keep it. There's another instruction given, right? We'll talk more about this in two weeks. But the other instruction is that God commands the man, look, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And again, we'll come back to that in a couple weeks. So, but what I want you to see just from these, these set up verses as we look at this passage in the creation of marriage is that as, as Eve is going to be created, she's created into this relationship in which man has already been given a ministry. God has determined what the ministry of this marriage is going to be, and it's to live in this garden and to take care of it and to keep it. I grew up in, in Texas. Not quite the Garden of Eden, but, but close, right? And uh, in Texas, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this sport, but football is a very uh, big deal in the state of Texas. In fact, whenever I was in junior high and the, the ninth grade, you couldn't play any other sport unless you also agreed to be on the football team. So I, I ran track and cross country, but I was also on the football team because you couldn't run track or cross country with also, without, without also playing football. And so I usually, when I played, I was, uh, I was on the defense. I was, for those of you who aren't from Texas, uh, my job was to keep the other team from scoring a, uh, from scoring a touchdown, to keep the, the ball away from the end, what we call the end zone. Uh, that was my job, right? And so I did that. And then I also was given a position on the offense, on the other side of the ball, but um, the, the guy that was ahead of me was, was much better. I was second string, and so I, I never played on the offense. Until one day, until one day, the, the kid who was in front of me had done something to make the coach mad, and so he, he yells at him and says, get off the field, uh, blah, 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 and then he goes, get in there, and he had no idea who the next guy on that position was because I had never played a single down, a single turn out there on the, the field, and so he looks at his clipboard, Bennett, hmm. you know, kind of like that, and I'm like, all right, so I, yeah, he run out there, and we kind of get in the, the huddle, and the, the quarterback looks and around, and he goes, all right, everybody, uh, 64, waggle nine on three, and I, I had no idea what any of that at three, I, was, you know, I knew what that was a count, but I had no idea what 64 was. And, wag- and I think the quarterback saw the confusion on my face, and he goes, 64, waggle nine. Oh, waggle nine. Okay, yeah. I thought you said eight. But, yeah, waggle nine. Got it. Got it. So we got out, and I, you know, we got ready to, to go. And I thought, well, um, I, pro- I should probably just hit somebody, right? Uh, I mean, it's football, and so I hit somebody, which probably explains why I didn't catch the ball, right? You know, no, no clue what was going on. Now, when it comes to, to marriage, many of us have just kind of entered this marriage relationship, and uh, we, we don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know why we've, we've entered into this relationship, but we kind of have a, a, a vague plan, and, and we're just kind of going through the motions of, of doing marriage together. But look, here, here's the deal. God hasn't called you to be a part of a marriage relationship just to kind of haphazardly go through life. Within the context of a marriage relationship, God has designed you to be engaged in ministry. There is a divine ministry that God has called you to be a part of. And may may I lovingly suggest to you this morning that many of you are in marriages that are struggling because you've decided that you're going to engage in some things that are perhaps good in your marriage relationship but aren't the clear things that God, through his word, has commanded you to be involved in. There's activity that's supposed to be taking place within the marriage relationship that God has clearly called you to, and you're not doing that because you're busy just randomly going off doing stuff. There's some really good things that you can be involved in as a spouse and as, as, as a parent. You can be involved in preparing your kids for the academic world, or you can be involved in your children's sporting activities. You can be involved in, in work to save for retirement, and, and all those things are good, but, but they're not the most essential things that God has clearly said, okay, this is absolutely what you must be doing in this marriage relationship. You must, husbands, be 
washing your wife with the water of the word. You must be reading God's word to your, to your wife and helping her understand, helping each other understand who God is. You need to be showing compassion in your relationships with other people. You, you need to be engaged in, in life and community and practicing hospitality. There are things that God has clearly called you to do within the marriage relationship. And if you aren't, first of all, saying, okay, God is the one who determines what my marriage ministry is, then you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle. God determines what marriage's ministry is. If you're single, my encouragement to you as you think about the pursuit of marriage would be to say, okay, as I think about the people that God might bring into my life in order to, to live life with, are they people who are going to help me pursue what God's purpose for me is? And if you're in a marriage relationship, one of the most foundational questions you should be asking one another is, what is it that God has designed us to do? What is our our Garden of Eden? Where has God sovereignly placed us in order for us to do ministry? God has not created the marriage relationship just so you can have a, a buddy. God hasn't created the marriage relationship so that person can tell you how grand you are. God has given you this marriage relationship so that you can do ministry, so you can do what he has purposed for you to do. God determines marriage's ministry. Here's the second thing that I want us to think about. Secondly, we see that God determines marriage's design. God determines marriage's design. There's five words that I want us to to think about together as as we think about God's design for marriage. And, And each of these words corresponds to one of the components of of God's design for marriage, a component that oftentimes throughout the history of humanity has been under attack as people have considered what marriage is supposed to be. So so five words here as we think about God's design for marriage, the the design for marriage that God has determined. The first word is companionship, right? The first word is companionship. Look at verse 18. Now remember, as you go through chapter 1, what does God say over and over again as he looks out at creation? What does he say? He says, it's, it's good. He looks at this, he says, it's good. He looks at something, he says, it's good. He looks at something, it's good. At the very end, he says, it's very good. But what do we see in verse 18? The Lord God said, and for the first time, something's not good. And not good in the sense that it's, it's evil, but not good in the sense it hasn't reached the state of perfection It's not good that man should be alone. God recognizes this this isn't what I'm this isn't my ultimate purpose here for man. Man is created to be in a relationship, and this is not good for him to be by himself. And I will make a helper fit for him. And that that word helper is a word that means to to bring aid and assistance to, and fit for him means one that, that corresponds to. Talk more about that in a minute. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven. And, and he, he brings these, so God has already identified in a sovereignty and part of his knowing what his divine plan is. He's identified the problem. Now he wants man to see the problem as well. And so he has man name all of these animals. And as man sees all these animals come before him, there's a recognition that, that there's something lacking. There's no companionship for him. Uh, the, the, the dogs are nice, but they're not really going to cut it, right? I mean, the, the monkeys are kind of cute, but they're not all that great for cuddling. I mean, there's, there's a, a lack here. There's a lack. Their conversation's kind of one-sided. So it says, the man gives names, but again, that, that phrase occurs in verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a, a helper fit for him. This first word is companionship. Because that's what's designated by, by this word helper. And sometimes we think of the word helper as, well, Well, that means that the, and this is a way that this idea has been distorted throughout history. Sometimes we think, well, the word helper means the, the man has a job and the woman just helps him do it. And so she, she takes care of the stuff that he doesn't want to do. She's kind of like his, uh, his lackey, his servant or something. And that is absolutely not what this word helper means, right? It's absolutely not what this word means. This word helper is a word that's actually also used for God. God is 
designated using this word. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 33, 7, it says, God be a helper against Judah's adversaries. Deuteronomy 33, 29, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. So God is a, a helper there. Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help my helper comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so this, this word helper is a, use that, that's, a word that's used to describe God himself. And so it's, it's not just some, some secondary person, which is a way that this word has been distorted throughout history. But it's describing a person who's coming alongside to give aid and support. And it's not just a, a person who's, who's doing tasks because the man could have trained the other animals to, to do some things for him, right? It's not like he just needed someone to hold a board for him while he, while he hammered something. He needed someone with whom he could exist in relationship. He needed someone with whom he could exist in relationship. And no animal could provide the relationship that man needed, the type of relationship that was going to exist in the marriage relationship. That word fit for him means corresponding to, literally means to be placed in front of. And so there's this, there's this need for man to do the ministry that God has called him to do in, in the context of relationship. God has designed us to pursue ministry in companionship. And so God recognizes that. The man recognizes that. The second word that I want us to think about is, is the word roles. The word roles. R-O-L-E-S. Not like biscuits, but roles, jobs, assignments. Look at this in, in verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the, the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and, and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he, he made into a woman and, and brought her to the man. So there's a d- distinction here in how he creates them. Men and women aren't, aren't the same. There's, there's, there's roles here that he gives them, and we see this throughout the rest of Scripture. And so as we think about this word roles, what I would encourage you with is we think about wrong understandings of the marriage relationship that, that don't correspond to what God has designed marriage to be. What I would say is this. You do not have the right to simply define who you are and what you will be in the marriage relationship autonomously. In other words, you can't say, okay, well, uh, you know, here I am, I'm Daniel Bennett, and and what I believe, these are my giftings, and and so this is who I'm going to be. Now, we'll kind of talk about marriage and and how my my wife can help me be who I have been designed to be because of who I am. And then then Whitney's over here, and she's going to define who she is autonomously, and and she's going to be her her own person, and, and then she'll think, and then after she's defined who she is, she can talk about who I'm supposed to be in relationship to her, that's not how this marriage thing works. God has designed us to do this ministry together, this ministry of life together, and there's, as we do this ministry of life together, there's companionship, and each of us have a role to fulfill, but our roles are not defined individually. They're defined together. And yet, there's distinction in our roles, right? There's distinction. I've been at weddings sometimes where the vows have been given to the, the husband and the wife, and they say exactly the same thing. They vow to do exactly the same thing, and there's no recognition that God has called a husband and wife to distinct roles within that marriage relationship. But Scripture is very clear. It's clear here at the very beginning as God designs them that they have different roles. Significant, I think, as we look at the New Testament as well, that God talks about man coming first, not in terms of importance, but in terms of, of, of how these roles play out. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that doesn't mean in the sense of, of a woman existing just to, to meet man's needs, but a, a woman exists here to be in this role, companionship, relationship with man together. 
think we have to be very careful as we think about roles because there's several tendencies, right? One tendency is to, to refuse to believe that there's any distinction in roles whatsoever. But the other error is to define distinctions in, in ways that Scripture doesn't. So, for example, sometimes people have said, well, the, because there's distinct roles, that means that the woman needs to always stay at home with the kids and the husband always needs to go out and work. And that's not a biblical understanding, I think, of this either. You think of the Proverbs 31 woman and all the activity that she's engaged in. But, but what I will say these roles mean is this, that it means that, as we see Scripture's testimony, that God has, has given this ministry, and, and he gives the ministry first to the man, and then he calls them together to be in this relationship together. The woman and the man defining their relationship, not individually, but in conjunction with one another. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And The idea here is that, that God has, has designed the family in such a way that he gives the ministry to the husband, and the husband and wife come together to engage in this ministry together. There's roles. The husband has been called to be the, the sacrificial leader of the house, to sacrificially care for his wife, and the wife has been called to Come alongside her husband and do this ministry together for the glory of God. Both those things, both those things have been distorted in the fall. The husband, for example, instead of seeing his role to be a sacrificial person who who cares for his wife and lays down his life for his wife, has has distorted this role to think that he's some sort of Gentile leader, as as Christ would call it, when nothing could be further from the, the truth. So there's companionship, there's, there's roles. There's also, we see here, and I just want to say something very quickly about this, the third word I would say here is, is gender, right? Gender, and I, I wouldn't even thought to have said this maybe 20 years ago. But what we see here is that God creates them not just with roles, but with, with gender. There's a man and a woman in God's design. And this isn't arbitrary, it, it isn't... It is an accident. It's part of God's divine design. I was talking with a, a person recently, a believer, a, a church leader, and this church leader was, was talking to me about the, the new understanding of marriage that exists in our culture, and he said, well, you know, I, I understand that I'm going to continue to teach that marriage should be between one man and, and one woman. He said, but at the same time, he goes, I think I'm going to have a problem, because someday someone's going to come to my church and it's going to be a, a same-sex couple, and they're going to have been married, and, and now I have a problem. I, I, I don't think that that's a, a right marriage, and yet at the same time, I don't want to encourage them to get divorced. I said, well, hold, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not thinking theologically. You're not thinking biblically here at all. Just because the state has looked at a relationship and said, okay, that's, that's marriage now, that doesn't mean that God defines marriage that way. And what we see here is we look at the very beginning of, of marriage, that God defines marriage as being between one man and one woman. We'll talk more about that as we go through the book of, of Genesis. A fourth word that I would, would add here, a fourth word that I would ask you to consider, is the word rejoicing. The word rejoicing. I love what happens here. I love what happens. It says the Lord God fashions this woman and he, he brings her to the, the man. And, and how does the man respond? Look at verse 23. What, what does he do? He doesn't say, huh, well, I guess we'll see how this works out. The old ball and chain, huh, God? I guess, uh, I guess this is marriage. <laughs> I better start cleaning, you know, the marriage jokes. I better start cleaning up after myself. Oh, 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 you know. He sees the woman, and he is pumped. I don't know if the, the, the translation here kind of captures his excitement here. It's like, yes, at last. This, this seems like a pretty good deal. This will work out very nicely, God. I'm very excited about this. This this is finally it. 
There's excitement as he, as he looks at this woman, and there's excitement as he thinks about this companionship that can take place within the context of this relationship. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to call her woman. He's so excited about this relationship. There is rejoicing. Now, now here's, here's what I, I think is so important for us to understand as we think about if we're going to, to obey God's design for marriage. If you are in a marriage relationship, what does there need to be on your part as you contemplate your spouse? There needs to be rejoicing. And if you look at your spouse and there is a, a sense of, uh, because I'm married, this person isn't exactly what I would like, but I'm married, you don't understand God's design. As you think about not just this person, but this institution that God has called you to, there should be rejoicing. There should be excitement. There should be a a, a passion. As you see, I'm so excited that God has called me to be a part of this relationship. And if you do not value the marriage relationship, you are fundamentally misunderstanding what marriage is. And and it's one thing for us as evangelical Christians to say, man, the society really messes up marriage with this whole gender thing and the roles thing. But understand this, if you and I aren't rejoicing over marriage, we are also fundamentally misunderstanding God's design for marriage. First Peter, first Peter tells us this, husbands, It says this in verse 7, we must show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And it doesn't mean weaker vessel in the sense that not as valuable or too fragile, but but like a a very valuable vessel, a a piece of artwork. God has put it upon us to understand our wives, to live with our wives, he says there, in an understanding way. Do your comments, if you're married, do your comments about one another reflect esteem or disdain? As you talk about your spouse, and if, if someone were to listen to all the things you say about your spouse during the day, would say, man, that, that person really esteems their spouse. They value him or her. There's a recognition that, that this is a good thing that God has called them to or would they say, I don't, I don't know if they respect their spouse or not. So I hear them talk, I don't know if they, in fact, it kind of sounds like they don't. In their minds, it seems like their spouse is kind of a not too bright guy or kind of a real, you know, unpleasant person to live with. God has designed marriage to be this place in which we, we rejoice at what God has called us to Disdain has no place in a marriage, real or implied. God has called us to value this relationship and to reflect the value that we have in this relationship and what we say and how we talk about each other. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we never <laughs> express concerns with, with one another or even talk to other people, hey, this is something that we're struggling with in our marriage. That, that, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that a style of communication that's designed to belittle our spouse, even unintentionally, as opposed to esteem them, honor them, care for them. Here's the last word that I, I think is important as we think about God's design for marriage. The, the last word is, is, is covenant, right? It's very interesting what Adam says here. It's, it's not just excitement, but it's commitment, right? It's commitment. As we look at other passages in, in Scripture, uh, there's a passage in 2 Samuel, for example, where uh, some similar wording is used. And what it means is it's not just saying we're in this relationship together, but it's, it's a pledge of loyalty. So when he says, you're, you're bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Adam here is, is making a commitment of loyalty, saying I, I, I'm pledging to be loyal to you. We're going to be this one flesh, and we'll talk about that just in a minute. There's this unique relationship, this covenant commitment that is the, the proper response as we think about living our life with another person. We live in a culture that in many ways denies all of these components of marriage. But this covenant commitment is is very foundational. 
as we engage this couple in the, the first perfect marriage, there's an immediate recognition by Adam that this is a unique relationship. A unique relationship in which it can only flourish as there's covenant commitment. One of my favorite passages on marriage is in uh, Song of Solomon. And in Song of Solomon, there's a woman who's talking to this person that she loves. And she says this, as as she talks about this type of relationship that she wants to have with him. She says this in verse 6 of Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. She says to him, set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. She says, look, I want to be like a seal to you, and I want you to, to hold me in covenant relationship. I want to be identified with you. When people see me, I want them to think of you. And she says, I want to be in this type of relationship with you, this covenant relationship, because it's only in a covenant relationship that, that this type of love can flourish, the type of love that is as fierce as the grave, that has the, the, the passion of God, a love that water cannot quench, a water that, a love that if a person offered to buy it by giving everything that he or she had, they would be utterly despised. That's the type of love this woman says, I want to have with you. And it's a type of love that can only exist within the context of a covenant relationship. That's the type of love that she wants. That's the type of love, this covenant love that Adam enters into with Eve here in Genesis 2. I believe here in verse 23. This is the first marriage ceremony. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We use similar phrases in in weakness and in strength. Are you in submission to God's design for marriage? Are you pursuing companionship with your spouse? Are you you committed to the roles that God has called you to as you engage in ministry? The, The gender issue, are you in submission to God there? Are you rejoicing over marriage as you think about it? And have you entered into covenant commitment, if that's where you are? Here's the last thing. Number three, God determines marriage's purpose. God is the one who determines marriage's purpose. Therefore, and so Moses gives us this this theological statement that we see over and over again in Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there's obviously, we've talked about this before, these these three components there. There's, There's this leaving, there's this forsaking. And that word leave is used oftentimes in Scripture to describe a person who is who is forsaking something. So whenever the people of Israel forsake the Lord, he uses that word, you've left me, you're you're forsaking me. And in a very real sense, as we enter into a covenant relationship with another person, we leave other relationships. Here he's talking about the man leaving his father and his mother. There's a forsaking of them. But understand, if you are in a marriage relationship, there is no other relationship that is in your life that hasn't somehow been affected by your decision to enter this covenant relationship with one person. Your relationship, as you enter into a marriage relationship, your relationship with every other person in your life changes and in significant ways. You have a new best friend, a new confidant, a new person who God has said the goal of your life is to support and encourage and strengthen, and that means that all other relationships come secondary, at least to that relationship. There's a leaving, and then there's a a clinging, a a cleaving. Again, it refers to a a covenant relationship. In fact, God uses this, this word that Moses uses here to describe uh, clinging to his wife or cleaving to his wife. He uses it to describe our relationship to God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, for example, he says, you should be loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. Right? What a beautiful picture of marriage, too. Holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Now here's, here's the gospel implications, right? As we think about the marriage relationship, 
as we think about the marriage relationship, we see that the marriage, here at the very foundation of Scripture, the very beginning of Scripture, we see the marriage relationship is this picture of God's relationship with his people. There's a forsaking of all of the relationships in comparison to our relationship with God. And there's a clinging to God with every aspect of our being. And then, it says there's, there's one flesh. There, there's a one flesh relationship. It says they, they become one. Become one flesh. And that's why in verse 25, they're, they're both naked and they're not ashamed. Every other time in Scripture you see nakedness, there's shame associated with it. It's the poor who are naked. It's, it's the, the, the people who are uh, heaping shame upon themselves who are naked in Scripture, but not here. Here it's because there's this one flesh relationship. This one flesh relationship, this oneness, is a picture of, of Christ and his church, and it's, it's, re, it's the reason why throughout Scripture, divorce is denied. In, in Matthew 10, 7, God, Jesus Christ, points to this passage and says, this is why divorce is not permissible, because a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold his fa- to, his, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. And so Jesus comes to this, this passage to lay out his theological foundation for why divorce isn't permissible. It's our basis for the rejection of immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Look, don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? It's written, the two will become one flesh. And so Paul says, Look, as you engage in immorality, and he goes and he talks about all kinds of sexual immorality. As you engage in this type of immorality, don't you understand you're, you're, you're becoming one flesh with, with something you're not supposed to become one flesh. You've been given sexuality as a means of, this is very important, you've been given sexuality as a means of worshiping God. Your sexuality is designed to present a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. It's, it's, it's an illustration of our, our oneness with him, and you're using it in a, in a perverse way. We are called to leave all other idols and cling to God, and this marriage relationship is a picture of that. It's a gospel picture. Marriage is a gospel picture. As we think about our culture, we know that we know that we've rejected this. We know that we've rejected this. I read an article this week. Maybe maybe you read this as well. But it's very interesting that we're talking about this today, right? Given all that's going on in our, in our culture, and, and also this, it, it's estimated that today, that today. 400 ministry leaders are going to stand up and have to resign from their churches. 400 today. It's an estimation. Maybe it should even be higher. They're going to have to resign from their churches because their sin was found out. There's, maybe you've read this article, there's this, this website designed to help people break their marriage vows through adultery. This Ashley Madison website, and the accounts were hacked, and the, the names were published. The sin became public. And, and it's, it's, according to one report I, I read, out of the 43,000 zip codes that exist in the United States, approximately 43,000 zip codes, only three didn't have uh, Ashley Madison accounts with someone living in that zip code. That, that's astonishing if that's true. What that reveals is a culture that has rejected God's teaching on marriage and a church that is in danger. And whenever people ask us, well, well why do you think pornography is so bad? What's your deal with people being happy and pursuing what they want to do? What's, what's wrong with adultery? Why do you have to define marriage so narrowly? We can't just say, well, I don't know, the, the Bible says that. Although that's true, we need to understand, no, no, there's something deeper here. The reason that we are, are defining marriage that way is because, yes, God has told us what marriage is, and, and then we go further, and we say, and the reason God defines marriage this way is because he wants us to worship him alone. And he's, de- he's designed this marriage relationship so that, we can, so that we can see a picture of what it looks like to worship God alone. And so what it means is that in, my, in who God has created me, me to be, I don't engage in relationships with a bunch of other people. I'm engaged in this one marriage relationship with my wife. And that relationship is a picture to the, to the world of what it looks like to be in a relationship to God. And that's why God has designed marriage this way. 
And, and yeah, sometimes it, it may go against what we, we think would be best for us. Sometimes it may go against what we think will make us happiest. But, but that's simply not true. God has designed this relationship so we can have fullness of joy as we, as we come and to be in this one flesh relationship with a person and pursue them. It's a picture of us pursuing God. A culture who's rejected God has rejected this message, and we must lovingly say this is why we believe what we believe. This is why we think it's so important. Here's the joy that you can experience, a joy that can only be experienced as you pursue, as you pursue marriage and your sexuality as God has designed it to be. There's a lot of application here. I wish I had more time, but understand that what's going to happen as we go through Genesis is the fall is going to damage marriage, right? The fall is going to damage the marriage relationship. The gospel is going to restore it. A lot of application. For those of you who are single, a couple thoughts. One, understand that God has given you the opportunity, even now in your singleness, to worship God through your sexuality. Say, this is a picture of my pursuit of God. I'm going to forsake all others and pursue him alone. I would encourage you to, to understand the value of marriage. For those of you who say, you know what, marriage isn't all that important, I say, you know, make sure that you understand what God has designed marriage to be here. That it is a valuable thing, that God has designed you for companionship. You say, well, you know, I, I think God is calling me to, to ministry instead, and I'd say, that, that's great. You know, just be very careful about your reasonings for singleness. And then if you say, you know, I'm, I'm a single person here this morning, and, and Daniel, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Marriage is a good thing. I'm hurting because I'm not. I, I'm, I'm hurting because I don't see anything on the horizon here. My, my encouragement to you would be, look, here's, here's, God's, here's God's word of grace to you. Marriage is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. Marriage is a good thing because it does point to the ultimate thing. And even in your singleness, you can see this picture of what it looks like to be with Christ. And you're longing for marriage as you go through a time of singleness. If you don't want to be single right now, your longing for marriage can be an important reminder to you to yearn for the ultimate. For those of us who are, are married, there's huge implications here as well, right? We're not the ones who get to determine what we're going to do in marriage. Marriage is ministry. We're not the one who determines its design. We're not the one who determines its purpose. God's purpose for marriage is, is oneness, to glorify him through, through this one flesh relationship. And as we do so, we do so as, as fallen creatures reply, relying upon the grace of God for his strength and his enabling. A grace that comes only as we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for his redemption, and his pursuit of the things that he's called us to do in all areas, including this area uh, of marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for marriage, and we thank you for how you've given us the ability to, to enter into this relationship in your sovereign calling. We pray that you'd help uh, those of us who are in different stages of, of living in a fallen world. Lord, there are some of us who are struggling with, with uh, several areas of the things we've talked about this morning. So we just ask for your grace. Uh, we know that we cannot pursue our, our lives in the manner you've called us to apart from your grace, and so help us to do so for your glory and experience your joy. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.